Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Welcome back. Today we are getting dirty. Dirt. Yeah. Dirt. <laughs> just, that just came to me. And uh, I'm not sure it landed. Anyway, my guest today is my buddy Jordan Mara, who launched Mind and Soil in December 2020 with the mission of introducing 1 million inter- individuals, excuse me, to gardening's mental health benefits. To help connect individuals with gardening's mental health benefits, Mind and Soil offers a combination of entertaining online education and the physical gardening products needed to not only have a thriving garden, but to experience how peaceful, calming, and restorative gardening is. In less than two years, the Mind and Soil Gardening channels received hundreds of thousands of views from the 30,000 plus person community that it has, and it's growing. And welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome to be here. Yeah, man. We've been a while. I, I, I was thinking about this and I'm like, you're my dirt dealer. At least you, at least you have been my dirt dealer. <laughs> you know, what's hilarious on that front is when I was getting started with the business and worm castings, they're like this mother nature fertilizer, kind of like miracle of soil. And the thing about them though, is that like, you don't need to use very much. And so I would be getting like these like larger shipments. And there was one point very early on where I like, I filled up my Volkswagen sports wagon, like literally to the brim um, probably had, I think it ended up being yeah, like 1400 pounds worth of worm castings in there. <laughs> and then like all in these, like kind of like drug looking bags that I then hold <laughs> into my garage. And then because you can like, you know, for say starting seeds, it doesn't need to be just worm castings. You want to have a couple other things in there. So then I'm like, you know, cutting in some peat moss, some perlite, <laughs> some compost, and then packaging it up into like a small individual package. And then, you know, selling those to individuals all throughout the lower mainland and BC and Canada for that matter at this point. But there were so many like points in that early f- phase where I'm like, I am just like a hundred percent a drug dealer for <laughs> soil. And I would intentionally like start using in like my messaging and like my WhatsApp uh, effectively trying to make it sound as much like a drug deal as possible. Cause I'm really curious to see what happens the first time I go like across the border to yeah. see if anything comes up based on the, the messaging that I've had they, in my they check out your Instagram account. This guy's like pretty open about being, a... <laughs> totally. he's not hiding it. It's all in his brand. And, and, and just, just to set the, the, the table, I guess, castings equal dirt poop or dirt poo, which is dirt. Is that, or is that, am I wrong? No. Yeah. So cast castings or in this instance, worm castings are the poop from worms. Yeah. And so what exactly is that? Well, the worms, they eat organic matter. So that could be an apple peel, a banana peel, um, coffee grounds, eggshells, etc. And so all of those things, the banana peel, the eggshells, the coffee grounds, you know, if you just left those in a pile for a long enough chunk of time, that's compost that is going to turn into compost. So the technical word for worm castings is vermicompost. And like the one key difference between that compost pile and vermicompost 
is that it passes through the digestive tract of the worm. Mm -hmm. And so as it does that, it breaks down in essentially like a 14 day period. So you've gone from 18 months of slowly breaking down to 14 days. And as it's going through that digestive tract, which is first and foremost, super tiny because it's a worm, it's getting coated with all these beneficial bacteria and enzymes and microbes that then end up being super, super beneficial to the soil. And as a result of that, ultimately to the plants. So a lot of people kind of like think of it or refer to it as like mother nature's fertilizer or kind of like a little bit of a miracle on, on that front, which is pretty neat. It's absolutely a miracle. I, mm -hmm. I mean, nature is such a miracle. I and mean, when like, when you start to like dig in, you know, no pun intended, it just, it, it becomes even more amazing every single layer you look into it. And I think that, you know, for listeners now, like you're going to get a sense of where a lot of this conversation is going to go. Cause Jordan, you, my friend have a ton of knowledge on this, but I was, I was reminiscing before we started here and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not totally in dirt yet, but we have a really similar journey in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just struck me. And then I was like, well, no, we've actually talked about this, but it was like years and years and years ago. And that was, you know, we both had our, maybe, you know, you can, you can speak to it, but we were both basketball players turned runners turned provincial champions in the same province that probably would define that shift as a very important one in the trajectory of our lives. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about that experience. Cause I think it's really interesting to just, you know, basketball is a sexy sport. Running's not. And, um, but you kind of made the jump and then it, it led you into this, it, you know, to all kinds of great things. You know, you got a scholarship, you won, you know, you, know, you won a, a couple of provincial titles you defended and talk to me a little bit about that. And this is very selfish because I love talking about running. <laughs> and like, honestly, I can remember because I, I think I'm, I can't remember what, what year are you born in? I'm 86. 86 and I'm 89. So yeah, like, you know, three years younger. And man, I remember like so vividly on the track, you know, I think maybe because at that time I would have been like in eighth grade and you would have been 11 or 12, somewhere in there. And there was like, I want to say there was you, there was Jeremiah Johnson, yeah. there was Cam, there's Chris Winters, there's Sam Pollock. And I just remember like watching you guys and just being like, damn, like these dudes can fly. Um, I had Chris on the podcast. Yes. I, I, I saw yeah. that as I was going through it on my, my Google podcast there. I haven't gotten into that one yet, but. Um, he, he is fascinating journey, right? Cause he, he just stuck with it. Yeah. You know, and it took him all the way to Rio and he was just, he just, you know, he had that moment where he thought, and maybe you'll talk about this. I, you know, I quit when I had that moment, that was it for me, you know, sort of second year out of high school. He just, he just kind of stuck with it and ended up on the other side of it and fulfilled 99% of his dream. You know, he didn't make the final, but he made, he made it to Rio. Yeah. And it was just really inspiring to, to, to listen to him talk about that. Oh, a hundred percent. Like I remember, I think it was the world youth games that he made and then ultimately came second at, and you know, he was such a talent at like the highest level so early on and then had I, I think you know I haven't chatted with him about it but like a, a stretch in there that we all go through where it's like 
maybe I'm not going to realize that dream or goal that I had of making it to the Olympics or making it to the Olympic final. Um, but he's one of those that stuck with it, made it through that patch. And then, you know, kind of had that, that next burst. Of, he he uh, had, um, I think it was, I think he got third. I was in the stands, man. It was like, it was surreal to see him do that, but I could be wrong. Maybe he did get second. It, anyway, like he had, it, it's interesting to experience to me. And I'm very curious for you, Sorry, similar experience to me. And I'm interesting because you both went to really big universities. You went to U of A, University of Arizona. He went to Oregon. Oregon and he ended up having some body dysmorphia stuff there because he was a bigger runner. You know, he was like 165 fit. Yeah. Right. And I had had some body dysmorphia stuff after the, Olymp- uh, after the World Youth Championships because, you know, I was 123. And everybody I was racing was, was probably 115. And so I became anorexic and that anorexia led to injury similar to him, but his was, his was coach induced. And so the coaching program just really didn't support him and actually pushed him in the wrong direction. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Mm-hmm. And it led to a series of unhealthy injuries or injuries because he was physically unhealthy at the very root of it all. Yeah. And so he kind of had to turn all those things around and come to terms with who he was as a, as a runner. And, you know, it was, did you have, when you shifted and you, you know, been the big fish in the BC in the British Columbia pond and winning a championship. And then you're now at, you know, university of Arizona, did you have that shift of I'm no longer the biggest fish down here and how you come to terms with that? Oh, massively, massively. And, And, you know, like even, you know, even taking a quick step back from, from that. And, and, you know, kind of like, yeah, there's, you know, those moments of seeing you guys on the track as seniors, as I was just stepping into high school. And then in, you know, 11th grade kind of had this like really, you know, really challenging moment because up until then I'd been playing basketball and also running track um, and probably spending about, you know, 50% of my time, you know, or, or energy split between the two. And like, you know, was on the provincial team for basketball and then on the provincial team for track and field to doing both of them at like a fairly high level. But with basketball, you know, it was like a hundred percent just like living in the shadow of my older brother who was, you know, like unquestionably one of the best basketball players to ever come out of BC. And, and, and just like feeling not entirely like myself or that I had my own identity, you know, so to then make that shift, go all in on track and field and have to like, kind of like face also all of the judgment that came from people being like, well, you're from basketball family. You go to basketball school, like the fuck are you doing? Like get back, get back on the court. And, And like, there literally were parents that told me that like on, like, as I was like walking from like, one part of the school to the other part after the day. And I was just like, How? you're an adult and just said that to like an 11th grader. Like what, like, what's going on? <laughs> that and, sounds like some like USA high school football stuff going on there. Well, and, 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 you know, t- to be honest, you know, like white rock Christian from a basketball perspective, we were playing against the biggest basketball schools in the U S like we played against Oak Hill Academy my senior year. Um, Cause I ended up going back my senior year to play. And so there was like very much this, you know, somewhat like kind of like cult energy to basketball at, at the school there. And all of a sudden I was on the, 
outside of that and, and the one that was going in a different direction out the, of that than that. Um, but that was such like a key moment of being like, no, like what do I actually stand for and believe in? Um, and am I embodying that and living that right now? And if I'm not, why not? What am I afraid of? And I don't think I realized kind of how much I was developing that muscle at that point in my life until a little bit later on, but it was just like such a, an interesting moment. And the second piece of that, it kind of starts tying, I guess, into more like the, the, the university um, portion and, and going from being this, you know, kind of like the bigger fish to just being an absolute minnow in and amongst these athletes, you know, incredible shift. What's that? The United States talent pool of athletes in the collegiate system is mind boggling. Well, and, and, and it wasn't, you know, even like going to some, you know, small major or mid-major school, you know, like the Pac-10, Pac-12 that I was competing in, like literally the guys that were winning the 800 were in the Olympic final every single year, culminating with like my last race that I ever ran on the track, the 15 at the Pac-10 championships. It's like the last picture that was taken, there's Matt Centrowitz right on my shoulder in the heats. Um, and he went on to win 2016 in the, in the, in the 15 there. And of course, like that picture was taken like the first 300 meters of the race. Cause it did not end that way with me being on his shoulder. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know that, that picture I was showing you when, when you came up, yeah. that, word of that guy and I are neck and neck. That was one of the worst races I ever had. It just happened to be like that moment we were tied. I was like, oh, yeah. the, the, the good photo is not yeah, necessarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got like a, a few on the, the jersey I have there. They've got like, you know, Olympians and world champions in them. But um, I was nowhere to be found in, uh, in those conversations. That's for sure. But yeah, you know, like one side of it is this massive like identity crisis that happens, right? Because... I I would imagine that kind of all of us at that stage in our lives and the level that we're competing at, it's like the Olympics are on the horizon and, you know, like you you have these moments where you're progressing so fast and you're like, yeah, that's, that's a possibility. Like that's a hundred percent the goal. And, and the goal is, is within the realm of reality that I can actually believe that potentially happening. And then you know, for myself, you know, what, what happened was you just kind of start like plateauing where you then go like two years and you haven't PR'd and you've been training harder than you ever have. And at that level, also getting your ass absolutely handed to you on a platter by these guys, right? Like, you know, imagine like three years of basically coming like second last, third last in every one of the like important races after going from every important race, like you're winning, 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 winning. And so that was like, yeah, just a a really, you know, challenging stretch to go through. And that was the first time that I went to therapy for myself as well. And I just remember sitting down in that room and, and, you know, fortunately we were, we were fortunate enough to have a sports psychologist for just the athletic department at Arizona and I remember sitting down with Dr. Scott Goldman there and like immediately is just like, could not hold back the tears and just like the amount of weight that I was holding on myself where I was just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like I, I can't train harder than I'm training right now. And I can't live with the fact that I'm getting my ass kicked the way that I am right now. So I'm like this, 
just, just fucking sucks because like, I want to be competing at this next level. And I want, I like, tell me what I need to do and I'm going to do it. Um, but like, just did not have that gear in me or did not have the staying power long enough in order to find it such as say, you know, Chris did and some of these other athletes. Um, and so I think, I think that cool. Well, Chris ended up taking a bit of a break, but not a long one. He, yeah. he, I think he took a, a summer to travel Europe, I think. And, um, and I didn't, I never did that. I was too much of an all or nothing kind of guy. Totally. What, what did Scott tell you? What was his advice? Do you remember? I mean, I, the, the, the thing that I remember him telling me was like, all right, like, let's, let's think about how fast you've ran. And we started going through that. And he's like, all right, of like the overall population of people that run the 800, you know, you're in like the 99.9999th percentile, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a hundred people that are faster than you in the world type of thing. Um, and like, put that into like perspective, Jordan. And, and I, I remember me being like, fuck that. Like, I don't yeah. care at all because like those people aren't pouring into it, everything that I'm pouring into it. And so, you know, the, the, the first part of working together and, and working, you know, with a therapist in that capacity for me was just like denial yeah. and just like refusing to believe it um, before slowly starting to come to terms with it over the coming years. So yeah, there, 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 I I can't remember like maybe when the first big breakthroughs were starting to happen in terms of having a more positive image of self, you know, to be honest, it probably actually was when I started shifting into business because I was able to be in this new arena and like put this energy into something that I was able to excel at after feeling like I wasn't excelling for so long. Um, so that, that's actually probably where a bit of a shift began to happen, but this like, and I'm super curious to hear your thoughts on this, the, what, what's super interesting about that though, that I've really been digging into this year as I've been building mind and soil is that like, that has just been a redirection of the same energy of not feeling like enough and pursuing this, you know, like once I get to this level in track and field, I'll be happy with myself. Once yeah. I get the business to this level, I'll be happy with myself. And then you run that time or you get the business to that level. And then it's like, before you even leave the stadium, you're thinking about, damn, like, what if I were to run this time? Or what if I were to grow the business to this side, opposed to just like being content and peaceful and enjoying everything that is kind of happening at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a really fascinating year because that moment that I went through, uh, or or I shouldn't even say that moment, but, but I think a lot of that patterning and that behavior that was getting ingrained in me in the track and field days was like, you're going to accomplish this goal. You're going to accomplish this. You're going to accomplish this. And then as soon as you accomplish it, you're on to pursuing the next thing, whereby what I now feel in my life is a deep sense of not being fully happy and fully content and that coming back from the track and field days. So like I'm trying, I'm, I'm in the midst of trying to like unwind a lot of that, both on like the business front and on the like romantic relationship front. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting being able to see how it all kind of started from the track and field side. Sorry, I just went on a. No, that's dude. That's yeah. really, I think that's really important. I've, I think it's really important for everybody to, to, 
to hear because we live in such a binary, we, we grow up in such a binary system of effort equals reward. Like, so whether it's winning a track race or getting an A on your science provincial state exam, whatever it ends up being, equals opportunity and equals self-worth. And the whole system that we grew up in is structured that way. And we, and so we're always operating to the next, to the next, to the next, as opposed to, like you said, just learning how to be and or learning how to integrate the different experiences that we're, that we're going to have both the passive ones and the aggressive ones into much more of like a, a flow or much more of a dance. And, uh, I, I think that starts young. I think the mistake that we make that gave us such a, you know, a wonderful progressive Western world of wealth and abundance for so many also creates that loss of identity for so many, because we're identified in the result. We're not identified in the self or in the community that we're a part of. And so yeah, you might as well have been just telling my story. Like you literally might as well have just been telling it, it, it's, it's like I got chills hearing you say One thing that. I'm, I'm super curious to hear then because you've got kids and you're, you know, you've had your experience growing up, which has been, you know, if it is, you know, kind of like, uh, like you mentioned, they're like very similar to mine, like one that has been um, filled with a lot of success, but also potentially a, you know, at least for myself. And, and I'm curious to your thoughts, like a, a feeling of not being enough or not, uh, yeah, you know, just not enoughness. And so I'm curious kind of with your lived experience, what are the pieces that you're focusing on with your kids and how you're raising them? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll walk, I'll start a little bit, I'll start a little bit back and then I'll, I'll, I'll jump into that. Cause we, I just watched Roadrunner, which was Anthony Bourdain's documentary. I was late to the game, but I, I couldn't watch it right away because I was so I was so emotionally connected to him and his show that like mm. I just needed time. <laughs> I gave myself maybe a little bit too much time. But anyway, I finally watched it. And one of the guys that I had on the, on the show was two of the guys. I think they were talking about how, you know, essentially he was still an addict. The addiction just jumped. And that's what, just what you said. Essentially, you still had the same mentality when you left running. You didn't deal with it. Uh, the the pain just jumped into something else. It masked itself into something else. And I did the same thing with business. And, um, and when, uh, when naked kind of, so that was my company for those that don't know, it was an underwear company and we were like, you know, quite successful started to unravel for me personally. Yes. Like on paper and, and at the top, it was having a successful transaction at the same time I was kind of being exited from it and not in a, not in the lucrative way I had imagined. I was I was floored. I was floored for five years with depression and anxiety, trying to like reconcile what I didn't do when I left running, which was deal with the um, like I'm enough without the accolade. And because what I did then, which wasn't the incorrect thing to do, is when I left running, I ended up hitchhiking across country, and then I ended up traveling a lot overseas, and then starting naked and doing all these things. So I was just. I was exploring the edges of myself and my curiosity in a way I hadn't as a runner, but I also wasn't exploring the inner side, right? I was just seeing you know, who I was in 
in interacting with all these different things. And I know that I made a lot of really bad decisions because of the ego of feeling like I needed to be enough and or feeling like I needed to be the center of attention and or feeling like I needed to, you know, be rewarded or, you know, at the front center. And I didn't, it took me years to see that years of, you know, meds, counseling, psychedelic, a few, a few different psychedelic experiences with the shamans, like all these different things to, to finally get to this place where I started to just started. I am not by any means on the other side of that journey. Maybe, you know, maybe you never are, or you're not, you know, that's the whole point is later on in life, you get to enjoy that, you know, for, for many of us. And again, I'm, I'm, I will get to the kid part. And I just say, like, I read one of my, one of my mentors down in Miami, a guy named Dr. Jason Gordon. He, he sent me two books and one was a book by Jason Glover, sorry, Tim Glover. And he was Michael Jordan's coach. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like untouchable or unstoppable, something like that. And it was all about the A-type or the, sorry, the, um, the alpha personality of a superstar like jo- uh, Michael Jordan and the likes of him who have to win at all costs because they're trying to fill, in his case, a father wound, a not enough father wound, and how it leads to success until it leads to, you fall on the other side of it and potentially it leads to gambling addictions and drugs and alcohol and this un- inability to turn it off and it can destroy yeah. your life. At the same time, it can build the most unbelievable success. And then the second book he sends is the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, I believe it's the Hindu text around, which just essentially it's about complete and utter unattachment to the result, one of the, uh, one of the aspects of it. And it's uh, an alignment with sort of the spirituality and the fulfillment of doing the work. And he's like, essentially, these are the two extremes and you have to learn to integrate them into an ebb and a flow. And learn when you need to step in and when you need to step out, or at least do your best at it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, anyway, I, I, was, I was so, so aware of the pressure that my parents, specifically my mom, put on me to be a successful runner that we kind of took the opposite approach with our kids mm. and like did nothing. And then I was like, okay, well, that's not really the right way to go about it, right? Is like to put no pressure on them. And every kid kind of shows up with their own, their own stuff. And you see when you're parenting, and they often say when you're parenting your children, you're parenting yourself because you're seeing your inner child show up in each of the kids. And nothing that is stronger nowhere else than with my eldest daughter. Hmm. And like, you know, where we like, where we like headbang. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but it's, but essentially where it's netted out, it is just a very acute awareness when I'm with her and I'm not agreeing or disagreeing or pushing or put her in, in the wrong direction for her. It's that I'm seeing, I, I have to recognize when I'm seeing my own self in her actions that I'm resisting against or that I'm feeling opposition to, or that I'm feeling like I don't like that action, but that has nothing to do with her. It has to do with me. Holy, yeah. And so we just try and be really aware of like, wait a second, are we showing up as in our own ego pain and insecurity showing up in this moment with the parenting? 
and or is it something that you know we do need to tackle with them in, in, in a constructive way and and that's only you know that's come via like a lot of healing to mm. to even be present at the table with that mm-hmm. and to you know again where our paths cross in, in similar our, our stories have a similar uh, or parallel path is that part of that struggle was and led to us coming to the farm and thinking that you know what for what we can't necessarily figure out or comprehend maybe just being in nature and being a little slower will help facilitate mm-hmm. that healing that that space that awareness and and yeah it, to an extent it has yeah. probably more for us but <laughs> yeah so did I answer your question, Jordan? Yeah, and I, I was curious on the, the the last piece there. I guess maybe like what some of those pieces were that you guys were were struggling with that you turned to the farm to you kind of I guess hopefully help heal or or, or reconcile if uh, those come to mind. At the at the at the end of the day, it was predominantly a, an overwhelming general anxiety a general tension that was building as a result of like, I love Vancouver. You know, we led this where we moved from. I, I could end up back there, but we were just noticing that we were anxious all the time. We were overwhelmed all the time. And so was our eldest. And so it wasn't so much a specific thing. And then fortunately the catalyst of the pandemic was like, you know, we were already feeling this, we were already discussing it. And then pandemic hit and they're like threatening lockdowns. And my wife's like, we're not getting locked down in this apartment. Yeah. Like, not happening with two kids, neighbors that already complain. Yeah. And this is like, you know, and then we'll pivot back to you. This is, this is about, you know, I'm not an academic, I'm not an intellectual, but I, I do try and listen to the tremors of feeling in my body and in my mind totally and try and decipher when something is irrational and showing up because of misaligned thought patterns that I've developed and bad, you know, bad behavior patterns and something that's actually just calling to me and saying, you need to do this and acting on it without all of the practical steps attached to it you know, in, intuitively acting. And I know that the intuition can be misguiding. Well, that, that, yeah, that, that's totally what was coming to mind there is like, is this thing that I'm feeling or this kind of, you know, experience I'm having, is it coming from a place of insecurity or is it coming from a place of intuition? Yeah. And that's such a fascinating space to be dancing in because um, it's really easy when there is um, a wound existing to tell yourself that, oh, my intuition is telling me this when in reality, it's actually, this feels good because of the insecurity or the wound that exists there. Totally. I, there's, there's like, what's really the, the, the piece that helps me not necessarily just navigate that, but because I, there's always a process of assessment in, in like quieting my mind and, and making an assessment. But the piece that helps me is I'm not too worried about the result of the wrong action. So if I 
jump because I followed intuition and it was like, actually I followed insecurity and it didn't end up where it should have. I'm okay with that because I always, I have a lot of trust in that it's just going to work out anyway, and that I can take something from where I've landed, even if I shouldn't have landed here. And that, you know, I don't know if it's just the fearlessness of, of, uh, I don't know where that comes from, but being an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, and, and, and just this acceptance that I think that the, the level of predictability that we think we have on the outcomes of yeah. much of is just bullshit is completely false. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't get stressed. I'm like, oh, fuck, screwed this one up. Sure. There's moments, but like, okay, pick up right here and take the lessons and keep going. And I think that that's where, yeah, it makes it okay. It's like, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't have moved to the farm. So what's lost? Absolutely nothing. Totally. Right. Yeah, totally. And and much better stepping into moving to the farm, getting the entirety of that experience than staying stuck and spending all that time wondering, should we move to the farm? Should we not be moving to the yeah. farm? And then you're just kind of like in this position where like you're not fully embracing and enjoying the say apartment life or the you know scenario A, and you also haven't stepped into embracing scenario B. Like that kind of like stagnant, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like indecisiveness. I'm way more afraid of that than just choosing A or choosing B, and then um, potentially, you know, course correcting or making adjustments based off of the experience yeah. that I have as I go down that path. Um, I have a, I have a question for you on that regard, because you did something, well, you've done a few things that are really fascinating to, to me of which I hope to get to all in this conversation. But the first one was that when we reconnected after you'd had a successful business exit or transition of some kind, feel free to talk about, you know, what that was. But we sat down and you were on a bit of a tour to expert. Mm -hmm. I ended up on that list. I don't know. But you were trying to, you were talking to different people that you thought, you know, could have some advice that would serve you. And you, you just seemed to be very methodical about this process. And I thought, wow, here's a guy who has like an amazing ability to assess a situation and take in information and make a, make a call. So, you know, how was that process for you? If I've misdescribed it, please, you know, fill, fill us in on like, what was that for you and what you, you were trying to get to and where it led to. Mm. Does that, did I remember it right? Yeah, no, you yeah. bought on there and yeah. So you know, to, you know, what was the, you know, I suppose scenario leading into that. And yeah, you know, I, I had a, a small sales consulting business, um, really, you know, working with smaller or earlier stage software tech companies, um, because my whole experience had been in the sales world at a tech company called Hootsuite in Vancouver that, you know, went really well. And so I started this small little sales consulting company and like within six months had more business that I was able to take on for myself. And it was one of these moments where I was like, okay, like I know that the you know, area I'm putting all my time is to working with different clients and doing client work. So the way that I scale this is I bring somebody on or, or start building out a little team of consultants that can do the work that I've been doing. 
And it was one of those moments where like, okay, that's the rational thought and that's correct. But like, what's the intuitive feeling? And the intuitive feeling for me was like, it wasn't a fuck. Yes. I wasn't like, fuck. Yeah. Like, let's go. Like I got to start finding, rounding up these people and having that like, kind of like fuck yes energy to it. It was more just like, yeah, that is the, you know, next step, step of this. And that wasn't the way that I wanted to be spending my time. Like I wanted to be in more of a fuck yes energy. And I don't know, this is maybe one, it probably was one of the very first moments of like self-awareness that I had because I realized like this isn't a fuck yes. And rather than like pushing forward and, and building, you know, what, you know, I think, you know, would have started becoming a really, you know, financially successful and lucrative little sales consulting company and would have felt really good on my ego. I decided to put all that on pause and be like, there's something that isn't like, I'm not excited about building this and creating this. And so what I actually ended up doing at the end of that year was I told all of my um, customers that I was putting things on hold, taking a sabbatical um, to really figure out like, do I want to double down on this path or do I want to do something a little bit different? And so what I did with this sabbatical, which is where you came into the picture, was that I designed what I called a curiosity tour. Where That was it. Curiosity tour. Yeah. I and love it. I wanted to essentially like sit down, interview, it ended up being 25 individuals who I've been inspired by, who when I like look at them, the the thing that I like would, if I had to distill it into one sentence, it was that they're living a life of conviction. And that could be as a mom or a dad, that could be as an entrepreneur, that could be as a philanthropist, that could be in the volunteer work, that could be in a religious manner. But the common thread amongst these 25 individuals is that like whatever it was that they were doing, they had that fuck yes energy to it. And so for myself, I just wanted to like pick their brains um, and get kind of in there to understand like, okay, like what do you kind of view as your life's purpose? Like what, what are you on this planet to do and to accomplish? And then, you know, kind of get a bit of an understanding in terms of um, how they arrived at, you know, kind of having that clarity where they're now so convicted in what it is that they're doing um, and the values that they hold as they go throughout it. And then more tactically, you know, like, okay, there's good days and there's bad days. What do you do on those bad days in order to stay on this course so that it's something that you can be doing for 10, 15, 20 years? Because it's that it's that compounding where the magic really starts to happen. It's not in like year one or in year two, it's the compounding of years and years. So, you know, what are the things that you do in order to stay on the course? And that was just such a cool experience to go through to um, like one, get to sit down with all these people, you know, some that I knew really well, some who I barely knew like yourself and others that I'd literally never met before was just like a fan of from afar and, and just like pick their brain in a completely open and vulnerable um, landscape. You know, it's like 25 of the most beautiful conversations that I had. And so coming out of that experience, I knew that for myself, I wanted to start moving towards something a little bit more impactful, but I also didn't know exactly what that was. And I had 
had such a positive experience with therapy early on and beginning to like, you know, not necessarily like change those patterns or behaviors, but just not have all that built up within me um, that I started getting really curious about like the mental health space. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to start shifting in that direction towards the mental health world, but not a hundred percent sure what it was going to be just yet. And so one of the best decisions that I've maybe made in my life was that I started doing just a little bit of sales consulting, very similar to what I had been doing beforehand coming out of the sabbatical, but I was only doing it four days per week. And that fifth day per week, I blocked off. Every single Friday was blocked off for me to begin my exploration into the mental health sphere and world. And the only measure of success that I gave myself on those Fridays was that at the end of the day, regardless of what it was that I worked on for that Friday, exploring into the mental health world, did I feel energized? Not like what's the market opportunity? What's, you know, the different like players in the space. It was just, was I energized with what I was working on during that day? And so I started by exploring into like the mental health technology companies because like, Hey, I came from the tech world. I know software, this is kind of like, it, you know, feels a little bit like a Venn diagram of like my skill set and like my passion area. Maybe there's an overlap there. But after like a couple of weeks sitting in that, I was like, it's not a fuck yes. Like I don't have that energy of like wanting to work on this until two, three, four, five in the morning. And so the next like beautiful thing that I allowed for myself was permission just to let go of that, even though there was like identity tied in there. And like, I, you know, like that was everybody that I knew in my network was in the tech world. And so the next space that I started like just exploring into was nature-based therapy and started like going down that path. And once again, I was like, there's some really fascinating nuggets here and pieces to this, but it's also not like a complete fuck yes. And so then the third kind of like area that I started just a lot, like literally allowing myself to explore into was my love of gardening. And because I knew that for myself, gardening was what I did to like soothe my nervous system, to find some stillness, find some peacefulness, um, and allow my brain just to kind of like decompress. Um, and it started, you know, for my, like my, my original connection to gardening, you know, started through a breakup and feeling incredibly anxious at that point in time. And so for me, gardening has always been like my, you know, kind of like mental health activity right alongside journaling. Like those go hand in hand for me. And what was happening at that point in time is that the world was going into lockdown. And so I started just like sharing my stories of gardening and kind of my love for gardening. And people were like loving it on my just like personal Instagram channel. And so I then started finding every time that gardening was mentioned alongside anxiety, depression, grief, PTSD. It was like all these research pieces, all these studies that were coming out showing how big of an impact gardening can have on one's mental health. And then I started posting like some AB experiments of when you use worm castings versus when you don't use worm castings and how much better those plants grow early on. And people started asking like, how do I get my hands on this? Yeah. How do I get some of these. And that was kind of like the, the Japanese word is ikigai, where it's like what you love to do, what the world needs, what you're good at and what you can get paid for. And at like the intersection of those four circles is ikigai or life's purpose. And that's when it all started coming together for me was that like, 
I believe that the world is a better place when people are gardening and getting their hands dirty in nature. And I want to bring the education on that front to help people be getting into it for the very first time. And we'll kind of like operationalize all this or be able to fund it by selling the physical products that gardeners need in order to get their hands dirty. And that's, you know, ultimately became mind and soil, but it all started from like just going down that curiosity tour and stepping out of something um, that didn't feel a hundred percent aligned. Jordan, that's, that's fascinating. And I have so many questions and I imagine the listeners have so many questions because there's, there's a million nuggets (laughs) of information, gold, golden nuggets, black gold. And if you still call your dirt, your dirt line that, but that I want it, that I just want to dive into, but first just in terms of timeline and this, this relationship, which maybe we'll get more into, maybe we won't, but were you already gardening before that? And then like, how, when did the, because it sounds like you kind of knew what you were doing when you were using it as therapy. So when did gardening actually begin for you? <laughs> well, you, you know how it is with entrepreneurship where, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, make it you make it type of thing. Yeah. But so like, so, so that was 2019 that I started. Oh, so it is new. You weren't gardening as a kid. It's not like. Well, so, so when I first connected with gardening, that was about 2012, 2011, 2012, I can't remember exactly. And that was like in the midst of going through a really big breakup my first like big heartbreak in my life. And I had not gardened at all up until that point, but was just in like, you know, one of the shittiest headspaces of my life. And I, you know, it was kind of at a point where I was barely sleeping unless I was, you know, kind of like medicating myself with alcohol or smoking weed and went from being like super high performing at work to like just blankly staring at the screen, thinking about, you know, our relationship. And then there was one weekend in there when I went out to my parents' place um, in White Rock to spend the weekend with them. And they knew that I was in like a really shitty headspace at that point in time. And so I went to sleep that evening. And I remember just like literally having my phone in my hand, hoping to hear from my ex and like not happening, obviously not happening, not happening. And just like literally being wide awake until rolling over. And it's like, oh, now the light is starting to come in through the windows. So another kind of like sleepless night here. And so then that next morning, I went downstairs, made a coffee, you know, an hour, a couple hours later, and my mom came around the corner. And she's like, you know, how'd you sleep last night? I was like, didn't sleep. And she's like paused. And she's like, you know, why don't, why don't we go out to the garden for a little bit today? And so we, we went out there a couple hours later. And she's like, let's just make a little garden bed here, like super simple. We'll put some like river rock in place to build a little retaining wall. And then we'll bring some compost over to fill it up. And so we got to it. And I was like, all good and started bringing over the river rock and then started bringing over the wheelbarrows of soil. And I just like so vividly remember walking along that path, with the wheelbarrow in my hand, compost in the wheelbarrow and just like it kind of hitting me for the very first time in that whole episode or that whole chapter that I felt like I could take a deep breath, like those clamps of anxiety on my chest and on my neck had just like loosened a little bit where like, you know, when you're anxious and you're just like, you're always like a little bit like short of breath and like a little bit tight, a little bit tense. And as I was moving that wheelbarrow, I just like, oh, mm-hmm. be okay. Yeah. And I just remember at that point, I was like, damn, I don't know what this gardening thing is, but like, it's going to be in my life moving forward. I don't know what capacity, anything along those lines, but it's going to be in my life. And so 
that was 2013. And I just kind of like at that point started getting a little bit of gardening into my life. What's really cool though, is that the next kind of like moment on that journey was 2016. And in 2016, I was living in Australia and I prioritized getting an apartment where I'd have a little bit of garden space. Uh, and had like this, just such a cool place where like, it literally was in an alleyway where they had turned the entire alley into a garden. So there were uh, bathtubs on both sides that served as the planter boxes that plants were growing out of. And as I was living there, they didn't have any composting in Australia. So you're like your kitchen scraps and stuff you put in like your rubbish bin that goes to the landfill. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I need to be able to compost this stuff. So I started researching, how do you compost in a small space environment? And everything was like, you need to get a worm farm. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm a 26 or 27 years old, like living in this like beautiful, like bachelor studio, kind of living my best single life. The next thing you know, I'm doing <laughs> <a> worm farming. <laughs> so I had like a date and I like, brought them back. I was like, first thing that they were seeing is like, you got to check out the worm farm. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good thing you're handsome as hell, buddy. Like, <laughs> And so that piece of the story where it kind of ends was that my parents, they came and visited and I'm just now getting into like worm farming for the very first time. And so my parents, they come by, um, you know, for dinner or drinks at my place. And I, you know, first thing is I have to show them the worm farm. And so I start like going through, and as you can probably tell from, you know, our conversation, like I've got a very excitable energy and my mom, she could just see it in my eyes and feel it as I was ex- explaining this worm farm to her. Like, like if, if you want the like definition of like, fuck yes, energy, it was me describing the worm farm. Yeah. And so in 2016, right, like her and I, we had this really powerful moment where she got me into gardening for the first time. And now in 2016, three years after that, I'm getting into worm farming for the first time. And she just like stops. And she's like, I don't know what is going to happen, but I've got a feeling that there's something big that's going to come for you in this like worm castings gardening world. And it wasn't until like basically three and a half years later that I ended up, you know, deciding to go all in on creating uh, mind and soil. And just like those two, you know, early mm-hmm. on pieces were such like critical moments and ultimately what it is that I've started to build with, with mind and soil. So that's the, that's, that's my long story on the timeline of getting into gardening. It matters, Jordan. Like, I think it matters that you, you shared it the way you did, because I think that we get too focused and myopic on like things needing to happen. Again, I go in a certain period of time, I go back to that like university or the binary school system that we grew up in and letter grades and then schools, 12 years and then four years. And you get these things, whereas that's not how it works. It happens the way you described it. It happens in these moments of, of incredible synchronicity and, you know, aha, divine aha energy, how I'll describe it. And a willingness to observe, oh, wait a second. And also to a willingness to, to listen to those who are observing it for you. In this case, yeah. your angel mother twice, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and not being blind to like, oh, she's, she can see something too. And I need to pay attention to that. Totally. And, uh, I love it, man. Dude, that story is fantastic. And- this is, you know, this is one of the 
I don't know, like, uh, I think biggest challenges that, you know, that, 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 you know, we're faced with, or, or that I guess, I guess, yeah, kind of like just, just that individuals are faced with is that like, it is way harder now than ever to carve out that quiet time to like, listen to the intuition and, and what that voice within is saying, you know, with, all of the different like buzzes and notifications and distractions that we get that has to like now be a very intentional effort. And so I think like, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where I just like so massively encouraged to, I guess, like my, my friends and, and individuals in my circle, like to, to find a way to craft that time um, to really like slow down and listen into like what your soul is saying and then the second piece to it is like cultivating the courage to be able to step into it because like, you know, going from, uh, you know, enterprise software consulting, that's like very high value to selling $20 bags of worm castings, which after your goods <laughs> sold, you know, you're taking back just like a couple bucks. It's like, <laughs> this is not a rational decision at all, but I had the courage to begin making that transition into it. And those, I, I, the, the, the slowing down and, and listening to that voice within and, and listening to the soul um, and then having the, the courage to step into some of these pieces. I, I don't know. There's, I wouldn't trade those two for anything. Yeah. And you, and you have a very methodical way of, I think, of uh, you can educate us because, you know, for one, and, and you can pull the questions out of this and answer this any way you want to because this is two times in your life that you've now described to me, both in the running to basketball when you pissed off all of White Rock Christian and all the parents, all those, all those good White Rock Christian parents telling you, asking you what the fuck you were doing. Um, <laughs> yep. And, uh, and, but you followed your heart into it. And then you did it, you know, you did it again with this scenario. And so, you know, where does, how do you cultivate that ability to make that decision twice or obviously many times because i know a lot of people really struggle with making that decision and and so just to pile on to that you know i was just jotting some things down as you were talking and it's like and then to step into this curiosity tour that's one not something that everybody thinks about that's two not something that everybody could even know how to do how do you get the guy you've never talked to that you want to talk to to talk to you right and you know three the discipline to then say i'm taking fridays off to just experience these things and then use this idea of, uh, do I feel energized as the condition of satisfaction or the condition of that, that thing worked? There's all, there's these very structured methodical way in which you're tackling these somewhat existential Mm. things that are going on for you. How, where does that come from? How do you do that? How does somebody else take a bit of that secret sauce that you have there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, th- I think like where, you know, wh- where does it come from? I think that like a, a, a lot of that just comes, it, it comes from like a, I'm not sure if it's like a, like almost like a, it's like a fear of fuck, like you only get one kick at the can and, and, and each of these, you know, seasons of life that I get to live through the athletics and and now this kind of like business type chapter and, and, you know, future will be a a family chapter. The last thing that I want is to look back and think like, dang, 
I played it safe there. Like I didn't go for the thing that kind of scared me a little bit. And I, I don't know, I guess that for myself, maybe I, I asked myself some of those questions a little bit earlier on in life and, and just was way more afraid of not doing the thing that um, lit my soul on fire and, and playing it safe. Like, just, just thinking about that makes me uncomfortable, like staying in something opposed, like, you know, kind of going after something. And, and, and that all comes because it's like, I don't get like a, a redo or, or a, a do over on this life. So it's like, I'm going to like squeeze every ounce of juice out of it that I can. Mm-hmm. And that's where like, it, it really, you know, kind of like breaks the heart to not have had the athletic career that I dreamt of having, but I don't have any regret around how hard I tried and how hard I pushed myself. And so that, you know, gives me a a, a much, you know, kind of greater sense of peace or as as great of a sense of peace as I could hope to, to have, I suppose you could say. And I think that I've, you know, I've kind of carried a lot of that with me into business and into relationship life where it's just like, uh, and I mean, I literally have a tattooed on my arm where it's like, I'm not going to kind of stay stagnant in a place of comfort out of a fear of the unknown and things not going the way they have. Like I'm a hundred percent going to choose the possibility of something amazing potentially happening because kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier is that like, we, we aren't, we aren't actually that in control, <laughs> you know, like there's so much shit outside of our control. <laughs> It's like for me to think that um, I'm going to be able to control this, you know, current situation and have it all be lovey-dovey is also naive. You know, there's mm-hmm. uncertainty that exists there as well. So that I, I think that's like that's the big part of where it kind of has has stemmed from or started from. Um, but it's not to say that I, you know, am in a place of being you know, peaceful necessarily with, with where I'm at. Like there's so mm-hmm. much shadow that still exists and so much un, uh, so much restlessness that still exists within me. And those are the pieces that I'm, you know, continuing to work on to, to this day. And, and, and certainly through, through this year, I can't recall the, the second two. No, parts. that's, that's okay. I, it was an unfair way of doing it. I uh, think, but how you step into then this very, the way that you go into the process of solving these problems and questions for yourself. Like I've seen your fucking spreadsheets. I've seen one of your spreadsheets. It's like the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. But again, like curiosity tour, getting people on board, being disciplined on your Fridays, being disciplined at assessing what happened on your Fridays. Cause like I would probably just go to the brewery and then get drunk and then not be able to assess anything intelligently. Oh, I got Friday off at the brewery. Okay. (laughs) But like, yeah, like how did you, how did you formulate and execute against these things that you thought would give you, give some structure to your, to these callings that you were having? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a really tough one to, you know, I guess, uh, coach somebody on maybe. Um, but, but for me, like that discipline 
a hundred percent comes from just like the level of sports that I was involved with early on, because, you know, when, when I did have, especially like in, in 12th grade, um, when I went back to starting to play basketball and I was doing track at that time, you know, like it would literally be like, be at the gym seven in the morning, shoot from seven till eight in the morning, go to school from eight fifteen in the morning until two 45 PM. And then go to math tutoring from two 45 to 4 PM. And then from 4 PM to 6 PM, that was basketball practice, but I'd have to leave 30 minutes early to get out to Richmond to run with KJAX. So I could be there at 6 PM to 8 PM. And then when I got home at eight 30 PM, that's when I'd start my homework. And that was like, you do that like clockwork day after day, after day, after oh. day. Um, that's hardcore, man. Holy shit. <laughs> Then, you know, you, you look at when I was then at Arizona and I was doing a double major marketing and entrepreneurship. I was on the track team. I was captain of the track team for three years. And then I was also our student athlete president for the entire um, student athlete department. So the, the days there were the ident- like identical, just they probably started even a little bit earlier because of the heat that we had down there. And now with mind and soil, you know, like my the, uh, you know, there's nobody holding me accountable except for myself, but I will not falter on like the commitments that I've made to myself for what I have us like executing day or, or week over week. And so it's, it's really tricky because for me, there isn't even like a, a conversation inside of like, Oh, I don't want to like get this extra piece of content film for this week. It's like, no, like you're getting this piece of content film, but you're just going to like sleep a little bit less or whatever it's going to be like, but that it's so hardwired into me now. And I don't know how to like, maybe like communicate or teach that to somebody. What I do know is that it all comes from a place of being like deeply, deeply convicted in the thing that I'm doing at that particular point in time, whether it's track and field back in the day or, you know, mind and soil now. And so the, you know, I guess maybe like most important piece there is, is to find the thing that absolutely lights your soul on fire, because when that's there, you're no longer pushing a rock uphill. It's more like you can feel the momentum and you're just trying to keep on building that momentum with what you're building or creating or doing. Totally. I'm curious, the last question at that point, if there's any good books that you used that helped you figure out how to do these things the way that you do them, not from the standpoint of your discipline and your desire and your conviction, but just to, to, to execute them, or maybe it was just a degree in entrepreneurship and you learned it there. Like, what was the advice that, because again, I, I'm pushing on this Jordan because I actually think it's a secret skill that you have knowing you is, you know, to the extent that I know you and knowing me to the extent I know myself, <laughs> I don't have that skill the way you do. You're very, you have a very sharp pencil at, in certain things, a lot of precision. And I think that that served you in execution. And I think execution is where failure to launch and failure to execute is where people fall on their face. And, and, and th- those who desire and dream to be entrepreneurs fall on their face in these places. And I think some, maybe some of that can help in shit. Yeah, I, it, it's funny because it's like, the, the, the question that comes to mind for me is like, how, how did you have such a graceful stride? You know, like, <laughs> and, and it's, it, it, you know, where we, we all have these, um, these things that just come natural to us. Like there, there yeah. wasn't a book that I read on how to be disciplined and how to kind of like have that inner fire, that inner motivation. 
Um, but it's something that I hear from a lot of people in the same way that, you know, you know, great leaders have a thing, great athletes have a thing, great artists have a thing that you just kind of like, I don't know how to describe it to you. I'm like, you just do it, you know? And I feel like that's like a a telltale sign of it being something that isn't, or or for me, like wasn't necessarily so much built as as a little bit within there, but that's where like, I think, okay, like, you know, what do I view as the formula for success? And I think it requires like really deep conviction. Like there has to be like a deep level of care about what it is that you're, you know, putting that time and energy towards. Um, and then it's simply time and energy multiplied by Kaizen, which is just 1% improvement. And so if you're continuing to do the reps and put in that time for, you know, for myself right now, that's producing X amount of content per week so that we can be getting gardening into as many people's hands as possible. So if I'm doing those reps week over week over week, and every time that I do those reps, if I find 1% of a way to do it better than the previous rep, then over time, something Mm -hmm. amazing is inevitably going to come to be. And the only way that it happens over time is if you're convicted in what you're doing, because then you feel um, excited about thinking about doing those reps for three, five, seven, eight years of time. Um, so it's like, yeah, th- those are more like the kind of like raw ingredients that I feel need to be present in order for it to be as easy as possible to step into just like laser like execution for a uh, prolonged stretch of time. I love it. My bro- my business partner has Kaizen up on his uh his company culture. Well, he, he's got the pillars of his company culture. He's an accountant, um, but they do a lot of different stuff. Kaizen's one of them. Yeah. The second person I've heard talk about Kaizen. That's that's awesome. And I think you you segued just beautifully into w- one of the things that I was really curious about, which is how you successfully built so quickly this this uh, YouTube following. Because I think a lot of people feel very. I, just the other day, I had a, I was talking to a guy who's he's a personality and he's had a lot of success, but He's even, you know, he's even got a, view, um, a video with a million views on it or 900,000 views on it, but just really struggling to gain the momentum success that he wants on YouTube across everything that he's doing, not just the one. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, scrolling through yours and just seeing like that you, you really are building that and that's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, what do you, is it just consistency or is there, is there something else in the YouTube game that you're doing that's that's bringing that success to your channel for sure yeah and it, i mean it's it's like a great you know like example of that formula at play right so like the first piece is like what is it that i'm convicted in and that's bringing as much gardening knowledge and education to people as possible so that when they step into the garden for the first time they're not thinking like Oh no, I've got no idea how to grow garlic. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. We've taken away all of that sense of overwhelm, all of that kind of like uncertainty that is actually the opposite of what I want somebody to be feeling when they're in the garden. So what we're trying to do is like decrease that learning curve as much as possible. And that's just something that I feel like deeply, deeply convicted in. So even though at this point, I think we have like 160 or 170 videos on our YouTube channel, you like the list of videos that I want to do. And if I were to like raise a round of investment right now, I'd put all of that into just creating more content because there's so much more that I want to do. Like to be 
this far into the YouTube game and to think like, oh my gosh, like we are only at the absolute tip of the iceberg. That for me, like that screams conviction and excitement about it. So that first kind of like element of the equation is there. Now the other two elements are putting in the reps and then the Kaizen moments. And so the reps for me are literally just getting videos live. And that's where like, it's so fun to go and look at any YouTube creator and look at their first videos and how terrible <laughs> because it's a matter. It's, it's not a matter of like being at the, this amazing place at the beginning. It's a matter of just starting somewhere. Yeah. And so I did the first like rep, got the first video live and I got feedback from like two or three, like really trusted people that I have. What did you think could be a little bit better in here? As well as just like my own, like knowing of just like, that was really could have been done a lot better. This could be a little Bush league. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's like, okay, in the next video, rather than using iMovie text, I'm going to use Canva to get our font as an overlay exported and then imported into iMovie. Perfect. Now the text looks a heck of a lot better. And then I start watching a whole bunch of like the YouTubers that I really love. And I'm like, you know, there's talking head elements, but I've got B-roll running all throughout it. So I completely changed my scripting process to, okay, like this is my talk track, but every single point has to have B-roll. And so I'm going to have B-roll able to run all throughout it And so it's like, all right, now I've got B-roll that I'm able to like work into the mix. That's made the next improvement. And then the next piece from there is like, I I started watching it again, or I started watching movies and I have my stopwatch beside me and I would kind of like hit the like timer button or the stopwatch button every time there was a change of scene. So like some kind of like trigger that changes things as like every like three to four seconds. So I'm like, all right, like right now I've got B-roll going for like 20 seconds. I want to start working that down to six seconds to five seconds, et cetera. And so again, like each of those little things are just like teeny tiny little Kaizen moments um, that I'm, I'm looking for every time that I make it, whereby like literally the only thing that we do every single day within the business is that we have an email thread. And this is like the only thing that happens every single day. And on that email thread, we share what's the one thing that we made just the slightest improvement upon. And that can be like, you know, like Mike, who does a lot of our like packaging and fulfillment. I remember like one of them was like, rather than like walking back to like the paper stand to like grab paper to put into the box. He's like, I put that onto a rolling cart so that I could roll it with me as I was putting it all in. And that saved me like 30 trips back and forth, which Uh is how it's like, that's like the perfect manifestation of Kaizen. And it's all these teeny tiny little 1% improvements that create something amazing. And so like with our YouTube channel, it's at this point, you know, it's 15 months worth of every single week, finding one or two things to improve upon. And, and, you know, you you then have that number of repetition repetitions under the belt that it starts to happen. And then I'd say like the the last piece that kind of like sits tangentially to that is like, just like the, like stepping out of being in the, you know, weeds or in the business and looking at it. And so that's where like the analytics and the trend side comes in. And so what I found very early on, cause I was like, what makes a YouTube video get picked up? And it's like, it's all like the click through rate of the thumbnail and the average view duration of the video. And so then again, like I just started trying to find out like, what are the kind of highest average view duration videos I can find from YouTubers. 
And how do we get on to like that level whereby now like the average view duration for our videos is like 55 to 60%, which I haven't seen anything that high on a long time of content. And, and then, and then the trends piece. So like, you know, over the last, you know, entirety of this year, I'd probably say everything has shifted from being like long form video and static images to just like short form content, right? Like Instagram reels, TikTok, and YouTube shorts. And so like, I was listening to one of the Alphabet, so YouTube's parent company, Google, and then Alphabet, um, their quarterly earnings call. And this is like Alphabet where like Google is one of the companies, they've got like so many companies under their umbrella. And the thing that they're talking about on this is YouTube shorts versus TikTok and how big of a competitor TikTok is. And so I knew at that point, I was like, all right, like if the CEO of Google's talking about YouTube shorts, they're going to start pushing YouTube shorts. So I pivoted our strategy from doing two long form videos to only one long form video and four short form videos. And since then, like our like views and our subscribers have just like completely gone to a whole other level on a week by week accrual basis. So, um, that's the, yeah. That was great. (laughs) That's great. No, I really appreciate that. I think a lot of people will be grateful for some of those tips and, and the next, bunch of tips I'd like you to give. I, well, here's the thing. I've fucking killed two blueberry bushes in two years. No, three. Um, but all due to probably crappy dirt and, or the bad transfer of the blueberry bushes from where they were, where they came from. And, you know, to your point, like, you know, we've been on our farm here for a couple of years and like one year tomatoes kick ass the next year they suck one year two years in a row, the corn doesn't grow. Like I said, like raspberries did okay. One year strawberries, not one year strawberries. Yes. Like we just are so inconsistent. It's fucking painful. So I kind of just wanted to like open up the floor for you to just start talking, gardening, dirt, the connection to mind and health in any way that you think someone who either has a curiosity about this or maybe you know, has a green thumb, hasn't put it to use, et cetera. Like, you know, just to just kind of start to, to shed some light for, for those who are just want to get in this or want to do this better, you know, from your family. And, and I think it would even be, at least my, my perspective on it is a step before like multiple steps before having a green thumb and even a step before having like a curiosity about wanting to begin gardening or growing plants where I would get started is just like, do you feel overwhelmed? Are you stressed? Do you want a little bit more peacefulness and calmness in your life? And if any of those resonate then gardening can be like a really cool avenue to begin to cultivate a little bit of that. Um, and so that's where I would encourage individuals to start from. And, and a big thing that I preach to folks is like, don't focus at all on the bounty, the harvest, the yield, because you could do everything completely right. And then mother nature can be like, yeah, no, we're going to have a heat dome this year, or we're going to have the coldest spring on record. And so if all of your kind of joy and happiness around the garden is tied to the end result that you're hoping to realize that's quite significantly out of your control, then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so my encouragement is like, okay, like 
you want a little bit of peacefulness, a little bit more calmness. Let's step into a little bit of gardening. I can, I can attest to that. I'll cut you off just for half a second. Like, because there's, you know, we we are both runners. And so they're, you know, into the, the idea of killing ourselves physically as therapy, but, um, like I, you know, being on the farm, like the, the things that give me the therapy are anything physical where the details of the results are very minimal chopping wood, flipping my compost, anything like that, you know, weeding, Yeah. you know, I don't, I don't get much from the chickens cause it's just all kind of technical and they're, you know, you know, do they have mites, they've lice, you know, why are they laying, et cetera. But like to the physical things, I think that's what you're kind of hitting on is yeah. there's a, there's a physical release from being in nature and being intentional about the thing that you're doing. Is that a fair way of describing it? Totally. And, 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 disconnecting from the outcome is what I would say and, and not, not a, attaching the happiness of it to the outcome, but rather just enjoying the practice. And that's where like, you know, I've shared with a number of folks where like they call yoga, your practice in the same way I view gardening as a practice. And so where I encourage individuals to shift that energy is to focusing on things that are within your control and I, I personally believe that like one of the best ways to go about that is to approach the garden from an experimental mindset. So let's take your blueberries as an example there. Well, rather than maybe transplanting all of them from where you had them into one area, you know, maybe you leave one of them there. So you've got like a control just to see like, you know, maybe it's just like a really tough growing year but now I can see how these ones are growing in the new environment. And maybe, you know, if you had four over there, you transplant two of them by digging really, really wide around it. And you're moving a ton of soil, but you're disturbing the roots as little as possible. And the other ones, you know, you transplant them and you're cutting a little bit closer to the roots to see, okay, how are each of these responding to the way that I'm, uh, you know, kind of like growing them or raising them. And what ends up happening is that now you're focusing all of your energy on something that's within your control. You're doing it in a way where there's clearly like a A and a B test or sample, and you're able to then observe, huh, this plant's doing a whole lot better. And the only thing that I did different was X or Y. Okay, I now I'm going to take that learning and I'm going to roll it into year two. And what starts to happen then is you're like, dang, I now have this new insight, this new knowledge. So my blueberries are going to be even better next year by being able to apply these things that I learned through my experiments. And that creates this excitement for the upcoming season. So, you know, for myself, I every single year have tons of flops, tons of failures. But with each and every one of those flops and failures is generally a learning or a new insight. So right now for me, we're at the end of the gardening season. And like, I don't know if I've ever been more excited for the upcoming season because of the amount of knowledge I've accrued this year by focusing on things within my control. Um, It ends up, yeah, just being like a really, really beautiful way to be spending time in the garden because it no longer... And it's so fun hearing people connect with it because they're like, I don't even care how many tomatoes I got (laughs) time in the garden. Oh yeah, man. It's so, so amazing. I, and it, it, you know, to your point, it is technical, but it's just, 
there's, there's also this, you know, when it's successful too, and you just stick your hand in the earth and you pull out the potatoes that you grew or the garlic that you grew and you eat them that night for dinner. Yeah. There is, it's a lot fucking more, uh, it feels a lot better than sending an email. Totally. Then, even, even then getting the response you want because it's so physical and connected. I'm curious about the dirt, you know, cause again, this is like people pay a lot of money for it comes in bags, pick it up at, you know, in the truckload, whatever it is like, and it, and it matters. And you and I were chatting a little bit before we started and you were talking about fungi versus bacteria being different for certain things. And I'm like, Whoa, mm-hmm. dirt ain't dirt. Like, <laughs> so, you know, what's where, where's the entry point for some, what, what should somebody be thinking there? you know, in the entry point to dive deeper, go further, mm-hmm. you know, your stuff is, is amazing. We've used it. It's not cheap and maybe that's not accessible to everybody. So like where, 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 how do they think about the spectrum of it and what, for what they're doing and where does yours, your amazing worm casted dirt come into play? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say from a like soil philosophy perspective, the way that I would encourage somebody to think about it is that like, essentially that's the bank account for your garden. Right. And so your plants, they want to grow and put on all this growth. And as they go through those growth spurts, they're going to be making withdrawals from the soil bank that they're sitting in. And that's in the form of nutrients, your macronutrients and your micronutrients and then water as well. So as the plant begins to grow and, you know, if it's been planted into good soil, it's being planted into a full bank account and it's making withdrawal, 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 and you're getting to then ultimately enjoy all the beautiful fruits of your labor. But simultaneously what's happening, right, is that the bank account is starting to get depleted. So the question to the gardener is like, what are the ways or what are the deposits that you're making into your soil? What are the investments that you're making into your soil? And that is like a huge can of worms um, where there's so many different ways that you can go about it, right? Like an individual could go and buy miracle Grow and some synthetic chemicals, and that's going to like jolt the um, nutrients in there, but it's not dissimilar to say taking a vitamin where you end up wasting, you know, 80% of it, or you're not just able to consume so much of what's in that super highly concentrated little vitamin or pill that you're taking. And the, you know, kind of other end of the spectrum, or I'd say maybe the, the, the middle ground, which is where I'd say that we sit is utilizing really, really good natural and organic amendments to be going into that soil. And so that's where like the three things that I focus on are organic compost, organic worm castings, and an organic fertilizer. And that's like kelp meal, bone meal, blowed meal, um, glacial rock dust. You've got all these things that are already naturally existing in the world that have been brought together and are incredibly beneficial for the soil. And so when we think about that all starting to come together, again, like the plant, it needs nutrients 
and those nutrients exist in say that compost, right? There's a banana peel or there's coffee grounds or there's eggshells in that compost. And as that gets broken down by the microbes and the bacteria in the worm castings, the nutrients become available for that plant and then it begins to be able to put on all of its growth. And then as long as you're continuing to make your deposits and your investments into your soil, well, then the plants that are going in there should always have everything that they need in order to put on their growth. And then there's like a even deeper layer. Um, and to be honest, it's, it's, the, it's one of the biggest challenges because I have to put so much of my time and energy into like building the business, building content that I'm not able right now to be putting that time into like the next level of understanding the soil. But that next level is really deeply understanding what plants have which nutritional needs and how do you go about cultivating that in as restorative and as regenerative of a way as possible. So I 100% believe that you could grow all the produce that you would need with only putting things into your soil that are coming from the waste cycle. So coming from like, you know, like green waste and et cetera. So you're not kind of stripping the planet of any additional minerals or nutrients needed, but rather just taking waste products and utilizing those to build the soil. And for me, that's like, that's the most beautiful and most sustainable option that's out there. Um, but it also is the most kind of like labor of love way of going about it. So when I'm maybe 10 or 15 years older and have my own farm, that's where I'll be spending the, the vast <laughs> You'll be an old, uh, trying to think of the comparison that you couldn't think of it then, but just you and your soil. I, I, I dig it. It'll be, uh, incredible. You'll live to like 150, I bet with a good microbiome and, uh, <laughs> and your hands always in the earth. It reminds me of the, the documentary that was pretty popular on Netflix, kiss the ground. Mm-hmm. And like, where does that one that come into play? Cause that was more, I mean, that was more carbon capture, uh, you know, t- dealing with the climate change discussion, but there was obviously the the parallel conversation around, but it's actually better for growing stuff if you just don't till it and and leave it all, leave all that nutrient in there. Mm-hmm. So I get, I'm not, I'm not sure how to formulate this question because it's like, I, but I, I'm so curious because we have a garden, you know, et cetera. And I think that, I think it matters, but when you're talking about at the end of the year, and you've pulled everything that you're going to have and you get to start fresh next year, right? With all the, as you said, all the advice or and, and things that you've learned, how do you approach the soil, the ground come next spring? Do you just leave it a la kiss the ground style, which they might not totally be leaving it. I don't, you know, seem like they were planting this stuff almost directly into the already just grassed ground. Do you, do you look and say to things you're saying like, okay, this apple tree or this blueberry bush needs this soil. This needs this, this doesn't need anything because it's the bank deposit is the bank account balance is fine. Like we're what's, how do I mean, it's probably a gazillion different ways, but (laughs) for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, like the, what I'll say kind of to preface things first is like it a hundred percent depends on that 
individual's unique growing environments because if it's Jen in our community who's growing in grow bags and containers on her patio in Vancouver, it's going to be one thing. If it's yourself in a farm environment growing in the ground and utilizing working with the native soil that you have, that's another thing. And then if it's something like myself growing in raised beds where I've established that soil, that's another thing. And each of those are going to have different um, approaches season over season. And so I suppose, you know, I'll, I'll answer it a couple of ways. The first piece is that like probably using your scenario as an example where you're growing in the ground, right? You're interacting with the native soil. We need to understand what that starting point is. And if it's really high in sand and silt, and especially if it's really high in clay, then like I would a hundred percent be tilling that soil the first year that I'm establishing the bed. I'd be taking like six inches of compost and I'd be working that down as deep as I could so that now it's not like this um, kind of set of layers where there's like six inches of compost and then this like really hard layer of clay right beneath that, but rather a more like homogenous and consistent, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 14 inches of soil that's integrated both your native soil and a whole bunch of organic matter so that the plants have the nutrients that they need. And then in subsequent years, I would not till that soil. I would just add one to two inches of compost on top of it. So now like we've laid the foundation for the bank account and now we just need to be making our deposits into it. That's probably the most common way that I um, you know, encourage individuals. And that's probably like, it's one of those things where it's like, that will cover 80% of the use cases. And then like that last 20% is where we like get into like kind of like the law of diminishing returns where we could do a whole bunch of super unique things to try and make it as ideal for a plant as possible. And it might have like a five to 10% increase on how that plant performs. But if you do like just those first steps, you're going to get 80% of the way there. And that's where it really boils down to like that gardener and uh, how much time, how much energy, how much bandwidth they have and how much desire they have for that remaining 20%. But for me, like, quite frankly, it's like, again, my focus isn't on the output from my plants. My focus is on just spending as much time as possible in the garden. So I'm totally okay with getting like up towards like that 80% mark for right now, and then continuing to learn other things about the plants in order to help them grow as well as possible. So take like, take broccoli as an example. Previously, I've been growing it, you know, starting the seeds in March, April, and then, you know, hopefully harvesting the plant in July, August, or like, yeah, probably July. But that's really hard for broccoli, actually, because it gets really hot in July. So as it hits maturity, it bolts, it all goes to flower. You don't get a beautiful head of broccoli. So I experimented this year with actually starting those seeds at the very beginning of July, planted them into the garden a month later. And now in you know, basically you know, end of September, I've now got beautiful heads of broccoli for the first time. So without doing anything on the soil, I've been able to grow a plant much better because there's you know so many other pieces to be learning and be focusing on and experimenting with within the garden beyond just the soil as well. Oh, <laughs> I, uh, I I kind of regret starting the soil piece so late in the conversation because 
I just want to go deeper and I know you got to go to pickleball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All the riot. All the riot. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's a, uh, an invitation to do us a, a follow-up that we, we somehow just really take your, your, your how-to content, your YouTube stuff and, and really, you know, build out a conversation around that for people possibly, you know, maybe come in the spring. Yeah, totally. You know, like one, one thing has been so cool, right? And one thing that I did this year just as kind of like a, you know, side piece is that I, I work three days per week right now at a flower farm. And so I picked that up to take off some of the cash flow pressure on the business and just be able to keep money in the business. And what's been so cool about that is that like, I've now got my backyard environment, which is raised beds, which is probably what like a lot of individuals are gardening in. But at the farm, like we're growing in the ground, we're interacting with that native soil. And so it's been such a fun process of seeing like what works well, what doesn't work well. Um, and, and kind of like whole new world of knowledge that I've got to build out in terms of understanding the soil growing in an environment like that. So it could, could definitely go um, pretty deep on different growing environments and the things, you know, again, the, the, the way that I approach it is like the things that I would be doing based off the experience that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it isn't a, uh, for me, it isn't like a right and a wrong way, but rather just like the, you know, different mm-hmm. extra different folks. So was there anything that you wanted me to ask you or that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? No, man, this has been this has been a really <laughs> fun conversation. And there, yeah, there, I think there's tons of things like it, it, it's <laughs> fun chatting with you. So like there's there's tons of different things that I'd um, love to, to pick your brain on um, and, and chat through. So may, maybe we record those. Maybe we just have those over a coffee. We can um, do it both ways. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, my, no. uh, my buddy's got a great podcast studio out in uh, Langley. So we can, uh, we can do both. We can have coffee. We can chat about anything and yeah. uh, try not let running derail the conversation for those who actually... <laughs> Well, it's so, yeah, like, right? Because, like, you know, the, the conversation that we had on running, you know, it, it, it's such a critical element yeah. and, and has played such a critical role in shaping the patterns and the behaviors that I have as an individual, some of which are really great and some of which are really painful. So it, it is all like so interwoven. Are you still running? I mean, you're doing pickleball and you're gardening. So you're, you're, you're keeping active, but I'm just curious if you, yeah, no, I, I keep active, but it's one of those things where like so much of my joy and enjoyment with running was like the competition side Mm. and like either like trying to like compete at a certain level or try to beat my personal best. Yeah. And it's like, neither one of those are happening anymore. And so say like, you know, when I moved to Squamish here, um, I started getting really into rock climbing and that was like the first thing since, you know, stopping running, you know, probably 10 years earlier that I was like, Oh wow. Like I, I can feel myself training for this. Um, and then recently I've just, I've just really been enjoying pickleball. So we'll see what happens there. <laughs> You've uh, well, you'll, you're setting yourself up for retirement with pickleball, right? Or is it now a young man's game? <laughs> 7,814 days until I qualify for the 55 plus. <laughs> hey, did you, um, did you end up climbing the chief? Uh, I've done a few, a few like routes on parts of the chief. I, I haven't done like a full top to bottom, you know, summit on it. It's all, it's all like within my grade. So it's stuff that I, I could climb. 
Um, the biggest challenge for me with climbing has just been like to go outside and climb. It's kind of like a five to six hour commitment and like, oh, really? have like five to six hours. Yeah. Between like, you know, you drive there and then you hike into like wherever it is that you're you know, going to be climbing. And then you do three, four, five pitches. Then you, you know, climb or hike out, drive back as well. So it ends up, yeah, like you kind of need to have like for a good session, five to six hours, which for me, it's just like, it's just really hard to justify out of time versus like, I'll go to the climbing gym still and like an hour and a half, two hours there. And like, you're, you don't want to touch the wall after that. So I, I enjoy that. And then yeah, pickleball has just been a bunch of fun as well. Well, that's sweet. Well, uh, well, maybe one day I'll, we'll, uh, cause you did, I remember you reached out to me and yeah. said, you know, you're interested in this challenge and I was, it just, timing was really bad for me man like i i know you would without a doubt like absolutely love climbing because there is like a physical element to it but like the the way that they describe like primarily like they say bouldering or or kind of you know roots as well is that like it like it's a problem and you have to figure out the beta in order to solve that problem and so like you could be yanking on something so hard but if you like you change your body tension a little bit it just makes that move all of a sudden so easy. Mm. And so it's so fun working on like some of the tougher stuff at the top of your grade, because it's like, man, this move feels impossible. And then you like figure out like one slight little shift change adjustment. And then all of a sudden you've unlocked that move. And then it's like on to the next one. And then next thing you know, again, it's like gone from like, I couldn't even hold on to this first hold to now like I'm able to rest on that and I've climbed the whole problem. So it's, it's just such a cool, cool, um, sport. And then when you're like, you know, when you're sport climber bouldering, um, you know, sport climbing, if you're above your gear, you're going to fall and take like a, you know, anywhere from five to 15 foot free fall, uh, or like five to 15 foot total fall. Um, and so like when you're up above that gear and you're starting to like be a little bit pumped and like, starting to wonder if you're going to like make it to the next bolt. Like you ain't thinking about anything else besides like those next few moves. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's hard. Cool. It's hard for us entrepreneurs to turn it off. And I've heard that rock climbing is, is one of the true pastimes mm-hmm. that you can totally turn it off into because to, to your point, there's such an element of fear and risk of that fall. And yeah, man, dude, I'm down. I, I live, I can see the Harrison rock climbing bluffs from my back door they're like a kilometer away from me so i they're all pegged i don't know if you've ever climbed out here but you know i I run my dog up there sometimes to the point where you can there's a bit of a trail and you hear people climbing up there i don't think it's super popular but yeah yeah they're there the problem is like yeah here in the summer it's just too hot you the the wall's not climbable yeah yeah it melt your shoes have to hit it in the in the morning or evening something yeah so May you're you're a fascinating soul with with so much to give, and I was so grateful for this conversation and this chance to reconnect with you. And I sincerely hope to more so, not just on another podcast, which we will do, um, but you know, as a friend, as a brother, and and maybe you know, in in this world of farming. <laughs> so, Absolutely, love the sounds of that. Where do you want people to come find you? Yeah, for sure. So best, uh, best place to find, you know, us. And, and again, like if anybody has any curiosity to, you know, potentially 
you just, yeah, like I said, want a little bit more peacefulness and stillness, calmness and joy in their life and is curious if gardening might be a, a conduit or a medium for that, then would absolutely love to help any way that we can on that journey. So the best way to you know, kind of embark on that journey, I'd say, is to find one of our social properties. So that'd be like youtube.com backslash mind and soil, A-N-D-S-O-I-L. Um, and then same thing on TikTok and Instagram. So tiktok.com backslash mind and soil, and then Instagram just at mind and soil. Um, very active on all three of those. Awesome. Jordan, thank you, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. We know there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through you know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show and so i'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through you know we don't have ads on the show i think i don't think red circles running ads but i wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey if the spirit moves you you know this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and and I'd love for you to check them out. You know, one is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, your, that's your shark tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, it has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup need some motivation, need some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.